I've learned too over the years, instead of referring to those as food deserts, to call it really, you know, food apartheid or because these food deserts happen naturally. These didn't happen naturally. These were planned and built and there wasn't consideration of those living there. Hey, what's up? This is Corey Dion Lewis, clinical health coach and host of the Healthy Project podcast. Now, the research shows that social determinants can have a greater impact on your health more than healthcare or lifestyle choices. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss how to improve health and reduce health inequity by speaking to healthcare professionals, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, give it a review. Or you can also make a donation to The Healthy Project using the link in the description. It takes 30 seconds and it's super easy. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Now let's get started. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Project Podcast. I am your host, Corey Dion Lewis. I have a great guest with us today. Uh, I have Aubrey Alvarez, Food Rescue, which is a super cool company, nonprofit here in the Des Moines area, doing some really impactful things. And the way, and we've talked about this before, Aubrey, but the way I got to, I already knew of you because I have the app and things like that, but you guys actually served at uh, our conference, came and got the leftover food. Um, and hopefully we were able to get that to some people that needed it the most. Mm-hmm. So um, Aubrey, again, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to to chat with you and kind of share. I, you know, hearing about the Healthy Project and kind of what you've been doing really harkens back to kind of my original career in health and wellness and corporate wellness. So this is kind of it's great to have that side of my professional career and then my work now with Eat Greater Des Moines and food systems kind of come together. No, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's why I there. There's so much I want to talk about in so little time. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, before we get going into the conversation, can, can you tell the people a little bit about yourself and and what gets you up in the morning? Yeah, so I'm from Southwest Iowa. Grew up in a small town. My parents were both teachers, and you know, while there was a farm behind my house, it wasn't our farm, and we didn't grow anything or anything like that. So, you know, I guess growing up in Iowa, I just assumed a lot of the food that was happening and growing that we were purchasing and consuming was grown in my backyard. So, you know, that was kind of how I've gone through life for, you know, I'm 42 now. It was probably not until my <laughs> late 20s, but probably more so early 30s that I really had the chance to sit down and think about, you know, where does this food come from? And, you know, coming from a health and wellness background, I went to school originally to be a teacher. I went to University of Northern Iowa, really found, I picked UNI because I love their wellness facility. I make really, you know, important life decisions based on (laughs) things like that. So it was a beautiful brand new facility. And while I was there, I ended up changing my major to health and well health promotion and health and wellness. So, you know, I ended up getting to move right into corporate wellness after college, which was what I was really wanting to do. I think really what I found is I like being with people. I like helping people realize 
how amazing they are. You know, I think that's kind of why I enjoy, I liked, I'm not athletic by any means. I always went out for sports in school, but you can ask my parents, I'm not good. I just <laughs> like being active with my friends, you know, like I thought it was, around and, and exactly. doing stuff. I was like, I don't want to do, you know, these kinds of push-ups and line drills by myself. Like that sounds <laughs> awful, but I like working out with other people. So to know that I could have a career in that, you know, especially because I have never looked like the traditional fitness person, fitness model. I've always been heavier. And, you know, I think that was really empowering for me too, to, you know, just help others see like there isn't one model of how you're supposed to look when you are active. And so, you know, I enjoyed doing that work for a long time. I ended up getting my master's in public administration from Drake University. And through a random, you know, how kind of life and careers go, ended up working in nonprofit and applied for a local food coordinator job. And that's what turned into Eat Greater Des Moines and where I am now. But, you know, I know I remember when I was interviewing for that position and someone asked me, you know, what are your thoughts on the local food system? My, you know, I kind of had that deer in the headlights blank stare, like, I like the farmer's market. I like right. food. But when you say local food system, I don't really know what you mean. So, you know, that's really where I think I've been very lucky in this role is that I've gotten to learn about the food system. And what I found out about myself is when I learn something cool or I'm like, I didn't know that. That's kind of great. I like to share it and I want to help. I'm fine asking the questions and then helping other people realize, you know, hey, did you know this? I didn't. And kind of passing that along. And so that's really where Eat Greater Des Moines and kind of my career have kind of joined in with being able to make the connections, you know, what I thought, what I've learned. And then really that kind of turned up to just how many opportunities there are, you know, when we have, we are a country that has so much food and so much abundance, yet at the same time, we have all of these challenges with hunger and nutrition. And that has never made sense in my brain. And I think I'm really lucky to be doing work that's really trying to connect those gaps, you know, I elevate those things and then work on figuring out how we can can fix them. So it's an exciting, exciting position to be in, but it's also a little scary because there is no path. You know, we don't know what that looks like. We've never been there before, but I'm confident that we have the right people here to figure it out. It's just working together to do it. Right. I mean, and I can only imagine as you're going on this journey, like you said, no one's really done it before. So like, it's you, no pressure kind of, <laughs> kind of a thing. That's but- been a little terrifying <laughs> at times when I've gone to conferences and been like, I can't wait to be inspired by, you know, another city or another community that's really nailing this. And then I looked around and was like, oh no. I think we're in the like in the same space and kind of in the lead in some areas as a lot of other cities. I found partners and collaborators in the work, but I've also found that no one's figured it out yet. And that's what is inspiring and terrifying. Right. (laughs) Right. And I want to kind of talk about that work. And we're talking specifically about, you know, the food insecurities in, in our communities, if, and for me, you kind of always, you hear about food insecurity, you know it's there, 
then you're confused. Like we have all this food waste. How are there food insecurities? But the more, the deeper you get into it, I'm sure for you, you can't, maybe you've had this experience is you start to see behind the curtain of how all of this works and like, oh my gosh, like what is going, going on here? But can we, can you talk a little bit about the lack yeah. of access to affordable uh, and nutritious foods and how does that impact, you know, the, these families in these populations that are suffering from these insecurities? Yeah. Well, I feel like I kind of look at food insecurity and food access, you know, kind of two ways. So one, there's the food insecurity and access just because you might live in a city, but you don't have access to transportation. And when you look around your neighborhood, the only places to get food are maybe a convenience store or, you know, you don't have a grocery store where you can purchase things. And I've learned too over the years, instead of referring to those as food deserts, to call it really you know, a food apartheid or because these food deserts happen naturally. These didn't happen naturally. These were planned and built and there wasn't consideration of those living there. And how are they going to access food and how are they going to do that on a consistent basis? So, you know, there's that piece of it of just where around you, especially if you don't have a car, if you have you yeah. know, physical limitations, how do you get your food? I think, you know, growing up as with the privilege of having, you know, a car, I've never worried about that, but that's the, we know that transportation is an enormous barrier for many people. So just looking around and that happens in cities, but it also happens in rural communities. We have a lot of rural communities who no longer have a grocery store, you know, who don't have, they have to travel 45 minutes to an hour to even go grocery shopping. So, you know, I think that that is definitely a big piece of this because then that means that those families either have to spend more for really lower quality food or, you know, really jump through a lot of hoops just to go grocery shopping. At the same time, you know, I think when we look at, I grew up too with, you know, that you have to eat all your food, you know, there's starving kids in, you know, whatever country, you know, they would love to have this. No one ever talked about like, there's starving kids in my neighborhood. There's starving kids in my school. Like, this isn't an other's problem. This is in every community. And I think what we know and, you know, I realize myself is when I've been in challenging situations, I've been in a situation where I should have for sure gone to a food pantry and gotten help. But my pride was what kept me from doing that. You know, I was already feeling not good enough, you know, and that it was my fault that I was in this situation where I was working full time, you know, had a place to live, had a vehicle, but that was all I could cover with what I was making. And I didn't have enough to go grocery shopping. So, you know, I recognize how that just being like, oh, well, you know, just go to a food pantry isn't as simple as it seems and not, you know, food pantries aren't a grocery store. You can't go every day. You don't get everything you need. And, you know, food pantries are doing the best they can, but there's really, we can't look at, there's kind of been this one solution. You know, we've had, besides the federal programs with SNAP and WIC and, you know, reduced, free and reduced lunches and senior programs, there's those kinds of things. But then otherwise, really the solution has been, oh, we have food pantries and food banks and that should be enough. And what I've learned too over the last, you know, 30, 40 years that isn't enough. 
you know, food pantries and food banks are doing the best they can, but especially in the most recent years, as we've learned, the quality of the food that you're eating is as important as having something to eat. Food banks were really set up as a warehouse model. You know, I think people remember, you know, it's been mostly canned goods and, you know, cheese that doesn't need to go in a refrigerator. That's terrifying. So, yeah. you know, that quality of food, I definitely am one that says any food is better than no food. But as we start looking at, okay, but everyone deserves fruits and vegetables and stuff to make sure you can live and thrive. And I think that's really where we haven't figured it out. You know, we've seen more food pantries and food banks trying to add more fresh produce. But really, when you look at the food banking model, it is a warehouse model. So especially when we're talking about food waste, all of that really fresh, highly perishable, whether it's meat and dairy items or fresh fruit and vegetables, that doesn't fit in the traditional food banking model. That really needs to move quickly. And so that's really where I think, you know, this juxtaposition of we're wasting at least 40% of everything that's produced in our country, while at the same time, you know, one in six kids don't have enough to eat. That is because we haven't figured out this part, you know, how food can be so expensive, yet stores are throwing away so much of it. You know, that just doesn't make sense in my brain why that's allowed to continue, but it has. Yeah. There are a few things that you said when you were talking there that really stood out to me, Aubrey, and it's one, the privilege of transportation. And, you know, Des Moines is a bigger city, but it's not the biggest city. And you think like, man, I can get, I can get from uh, anywhere I want to within 15 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes max. Mm-hmm. And that's a privilege. But to think to not have a vehicle to just go to the grocery store is is crazy. And who wants to get on the bus to go to the grocery store? Especially right now, it's what, 30 to 20 some degrees outside, snowing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that is that is a huge challenge for a lot of people in these in the city. So yeah. that's, that's and then you add in a couple kids and yeah. you want to try like, to go grocery shopping with a few kids and all your groceries. Like, I don't like doing that with a vehicle, let alone right. on the bus. And then the fear of somebody, you know, God forbid it doesn't happen, but somebody taking your stuff or robbing you or mm-hmm. that could, can happen. I'm sure, it has, I'm sure it has happened. Right. So, so there's that, that we have to, to think about for a lot of people in our community. The other thing that you said uh, was the lack of innovation with these food pantries. And I see patients all the time where they may have, they may have $50 in, in food, food assistance, and then they have to fill in the rest of the, that doesn't get them through the whole month. So they fill in yeah. the rest of the month with the food pantry. And these are people who are diabetic, high blood pressure, multiple, you know, comorbidities or chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. And they're going to the food pantry and this is no shade or no hate it's food pantry, but mm-hmm. you know, a diabetic is eating, you know, muffins and cakes because they need food. Mm-hmm. They, they need something to eat, but that's what the access, what they have. That's what their access is. Yeah. Yeah. I think you touched on something super important that I don't think a lot of people are even considering is 
this food, the food banks is broke, bro. Like the end of the, like how we're doing it is not creative and it's not innovative. Is and it's it's almost like, hey, there's food there that should be enough, but we're kind of in a way hurting or creating a bigger problem because these people with these diseases are going there for food. And this is the food that, like you said, can stay on the shelf for months upon months, which is not fantastic. Yeah. You got to do what you got to do. You know what I mean? You got to do what you got to do, but it's not fantastic. Mm-hmm. And it, and we're, we're not making healthier human beings, you know? So what, yeah, what are we there's doing? no, yeah, there's no balance there. You know, I think that's what we talk about coming from a wellness, you know, is balance. It's, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with having cake, but having it, that's the only thing you have access to every day. You know, that would make anyone feel awful. But again, we're not, you know, and I think that's where food banks and food pantries are, you know, I really respect the Des Moines Area Religious Council, DMARC, you know, they took and said, you know, they did a study with Iowa State to say, you know, who are we serving and what are, you know, those potential health and comorbidities and saw that a majority of their clients had diabetes, had high blood pressure, had a lot of, you know, health challenges and what they were serving them wasn't helping. So they made the choice to only provide. So all of the food that they're purchasing, they're purchasing low sodium. They're, you know, purchasing, trying to provide more fresh fruits and vegetables. And I think that is just a tremendous, not to say they don't have other, you know, like hamburger helper and some of those like, but they try, they ask for whole grain pasta, you know, and low sugar kinds of sauces. That's what they purchase with their resources. What they use for some of those add-in things that, you know, they call it sometimes anytime food. That's where food rescue generally goes is that's available every day. You can come and get it as often as you want. What we've seen is for some reason, and this is somewhat I would say it's not super unique to Iowa, but I think Iowa is in an interesting spot where we have four major, like our grocery store chains and gas convenience store chains are based in Iowa. So we don't have, you know, Kroger's and Publix and Albertsons and some of these other grocery stores that have really latched on to food recovery. And in a way that, you know, what I heard from a Kroger executive, how when they first started food recovery, they started in the meat department. My jaw literally dropped. Like there's video of it. It was on stage at the World Food Rise. And I was like, you started in the meat department? You know, that's really here, we have a really hard time even getting to the meat department. For some reason, a lot of food donors here are really, if if they donate, they're okay, they'll donate from the bakery, which, okay, but you have all this other good food. Why are we not doing that? You know, and so that's, I think, what can be sometimes tricky is when you hear from places that are like, oh yeah, we do food rescue. You know, we've donated 25 million pounds of food. What did you donate? You know, unless you're a bakery, why are you donating just bakery items? If you're a full service grocery store, what's happening with all the fresh cut fruits and vegetables? What's happening with the meat? You know, we know from some grocery stores, they're known for having fresh meat, and they throw away what they don't sell at the end of yes. the day. What That's is ridiculous. It? Yeah. Why would you rather and and this is where 
is like make it make sense for me. Why would you rather throw away the meat instead of giving it to someone that needs it or even reselling it to maybe something at a reduced cost? I don't know how that works. I'm sure there's probably stuff. But there's plenty of ways to figure it out. And I think that's what shocked me the most is, you know, food rescue and food recovery isn't new. It was new to me. You know, I wasn't familiar with it when I started in this role. You know, I just assumed and I know what happens when you assume, but I assumed that why would any of these businesses who their focus is on food, why would they throw it away? You know, they see the value of it. Why would they waste it? So it wasn't until one of my, you know, final, I was at a, an event, you know, what do they have, you know, plated food. And I was asking at the end of the event, the people who were cleaning up, like, what's going to happen with all this extra food? You know, that's a lot of really good food there. And the staff said, oh, you know, we have to throw it away, health law. And I was, you know, at the time, like, ugh. That's a bummer. You know, I'm not a lawyer, so someone should figure that out. Well, little did I know someone had figured it out and it was actually the federal government, which I was like, wow, that's exciting. <laughs> so the federal government passed the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Act in the late 90s that protects donors from any civil or criminal liabilities when they donate food to a nonprofit organization. Because a lot of times there's still this, you know, tale of, you know, we donated something, someone got sick and they sued us. That's just not true. That's not the case. They've had, you know, University of Arkansas Law School did case review to see has anyone had to use the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Act since it has been, you know, done. And the answer was no, there have not been, you know, I think that's the, it's an easy, because everyone is, you know, We don't, no one wants to be sued by any means. But I think, too, what we're forgetting is for where this food is going, suing someone is not the top of your mind. Where this food is going is, I'm grateful to have a meal. I'm grateful that this food is available. You know, and I think that's the part that, you know, for us, the places we're taking this food, no one knows if it was donated or purchased. Only we know that. So, you know, I think there's been a lot of, just fear put in this that is preventing and you know the the benefits for all of this that's also not only are donors protected they also have expanded tax benefits when they donate this food so not only are you saving on your waste costs you're actually getting a tax benefit and beyond that we've really seen that employees feel so much better about it. You know, I think when you talk about who makes the decision about not donating the food and then who physically has to throw it away, those are not the same people. And, you know, I think we've found that for a lot of these companies that are actively doing food recovery and making it a part of their business, their employees are proud to work there. No one wants to throw away perfectly good food. And I think when we look at some of these maybe lower wage positions that have food, a lot of times we're asking people who are dealing with food insecurity to throw away perfectly good food. And I just, as a human, can't. That is not okay. But again, they're not the decision makers. And we're not going to put those who don't have the power to make those decisions you know, in having the chance of losing their job, you know, so I think that's really where we've really been trying to go higher, you know, and find out who are the decision makers and get them to make the decision, 
with them. You know, we're the first ones to say there is no food rescue relationship. They're all unique. Food rescue is all about relationships. It's about working with people, understanding, you know, what do you have? What do you need? What would work best? And that's what, you know, Eat Greater Des Moines is working to do. And we have, you know, we're not unique. We have partners across the country that are doing the same thing, you know, and I think that's really where, especially in Iowa, we have an opportunity to do that better. You know, there is no one size fits all. There's no one entity that can do everything for everybody, you know, and I think that's what I've been most excited about is once we let people know, you know, that this is possible and not only is it possible, it's incredibly beneficial. What I've been most excited about recently is we've had a few, you know, new community refrigerators, which. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's been great because one, the community refrigerator, we've launch these in a lot of libraries. And really our role is to kind of find where are people already and how could we put food there? And libraries have been such an incredible partner in that space. So we can help them get the fridge. We might be able to help them get food, but we are not, we don't run the fridge. We can't supply all the food. And what I've loved is seeing, for example, we have a, a library in Granger, Iowa that just, you know, got started. And that library director is incredible. She's been the one that go to, went to her local grocery store. She went to her local convenience store and she got them to donate because she knows them. She's who they have a relationship with. And that's, that's what makes me so excited because if everyone's waiting for us to do all of that, we're a small team of two, you know, less than we're going to have, we're hiring new people, which is exciting, but we can't be the ones that do all of that. I think that's really where once we start to see more just community members and people in the community recognizing this is our community's food. This was brought here and it going in the garbage is bad for everybody. And we're going to take ownership and to see what, you know, we have another person who launched a fridge and she has been, she's gotten four new donors going that benefit not just her fridge, but benefit everybody else as well when they can't use it. That's what makes me very excited to see the role that we're playing is really just empowering people to recognize you can do other things. You know, you don't have to open a food pantry to make a difference. You can be the one that goes out and gets more businesses to donate food. You can be the one that, you know, looks around your community and says, where could we put food and build those relationships? But the only way we're going to figure this out is by a lot of people caring and a lot of people yeah. working together to say, how can we do this? Because how we've been doing it so far and just kind of, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. We're like, oh, we have a food pantry. That's enough. It's not enough. And we know it's not enough, but it's completely figure outable if we get enough people recognizing that, you know, we want them to do it. I want them to do it. You know, I kind of call myself mostly the chief hype person. I'm the person who someone calls and like, could we do this? And my answer is usually, yes, yes, you yes. can. Let's figure out how. And I'll work with you. We'll work with you to figure it out. But, you know, I think that's an important role that we play is just helping communities and people recognize the opportunities that they have. And that's exciting. Right. It's like you guys are, you're, you're planting the seed in the community, but it's the community's role to make sure that they're 
they're growing that and they're, they're sowing that seed to for the whole community. And there's some pride in that knowing that, Hey, you're helping your community be healthier and, and giving people access to healthful foods. Yeah, it's been great, you know, following the Granger Library Facebook page, just the quality of food that she's rescuing and she's getting is all of this really amazing fresh produce, hummus, like it's great food and it's all right there at the library and it's for free. And I think, you know, what we also I'm loving about the community refrigerators is I think there's always been food that's okay for others. You know, a lot of times I think people can recognize when you're donating to a pantry, you go through your pantry and be like, what do I not like? What do I not want? What's really (laughs) old? And that's what we give, which I've done that too. I have been that person. Instead of looking at all of this food as, would I eat it? Do I want that? Is that what I have? You know, we look at the food and community refrigerators as that's food for everybody. You don't have to be in need. You just, if you need a sandwich and there's a sandwich there, eat it. You know, really taking out this othering of, well, that's good enough food for them. If it's not good enough food for you, then don't give it to someone else. You know, you we need to really reframe this whole, you know, what's okay, what's not okay, and really look more, again, expansively into, you know, I think for the community refrigerators, the benefit is we're not, we don't have to prove need. We're not there checking, you know, are you needy enough is what we hear a lot. We don't care. The refrigerator is there for everybody. And anybody who is using that fridge is helping everybody. You know, that food is good. It's not going in the garbage. So we want everyone to see these refrigerators as theirs. They help put the food in it. They help take the food out. They help keep it clean. Community refrigerators are only successful because of the community. And that's been, that was a big leap. You know, when we launched our first one with Sweet Tooth Farm in December 2020 is what would happen. And what we've seen now is when it's something the community wants, it's something the community values and takes care of. And so now we went from one to we have almost 40 and we don't run those, you know, those are run by the community. And I think that's incredible to see just what's possible there. Right. And yeah, I, th- I think for, for most people, even not even knowing that that is even a, an option and then seeing that and being like, wow. Because I can only imagine, and this is just coming from not my own experience, but coworkers that I know that utilize Mm -hmm. these fridges in their community. And they're just talking about how, you know, when you see somebody there, you don't even know if they're grabbing something or giving something. It's because it's for the community. Mm -hmm. So she'll go and she may see something that she'll take or he'll go back there and they'll, they'll add something, you know, to, to the community. And I'm I'm curious though, you know, in these communities, they're different. They're different races. They're they're different cultures. What I'm curious if you know, what do those fridges look like? That are are there are they are they inclusive for other cultures, or are there separate refrigerators for people that eat a certain way who don't eat pork, or you know, what whatever the case may be? But what does that look like? What's your experience been there? Yeah, I think, you know, and that's what's kind of unique about these refrigerators is they are unique to the community, you know, and so a fridge and a school would have different items in it because, you know, it's for kids. And so it's more ready to eat things and stuff that is easier for someone to eat on the go. Whereas we also have like the fridges in libraries or refrigerators in 
um, medical clinics. You know, again, it really is built by what goes in it and what moves quickly is based on who's there. I think the challenge with these community refrigerators is, you know, we can't guarantee anything is in there at any given moment. And I think that's been somewhat tricky is, you know, when we've been launching, helping launch these community refrigerators, we don't make a big deal about it. We don't talk, we don't blast it on our Facebook page because we've found, you know, one of the the best parts about the Sweet Tooth community fridge that we partnered with them to launch is it got a lot of attention and that was great. But with that attention brings positive and negative. And it also means that fridge is utilized so much more than any of the other refrigerators in our community. And that's only a challenge because it moves through food through food so much more quickly. So, you know, that's where us, there doesn't need to be just one fridge. You know, that's why it's really been important for us to put more fridges in more places so people don't feel like well, I have to drive again 20 miles to get to this fridge. You know, our vision and hope is how many places are there people? Why don't we have fridges there? You know, I think that's the part too is we know that if we actually rescued all of the food that was available in our community that was being thrown away every day, it would be too much for our current food pantry and food bank partners. They would not have the ability to distribute it. So that's really where, you know, for us, as we were growing this, recognizing, well, where else are people and how could we put food there? Having the infrastructure of a fridge to make it safe to store perishable items is the first part in building the infrastructure and the landscape for when we do get all of these places that have food to participate in food recovery, then we have it in more places and we can have, you know, more. So there can be communities where, you know, if they have dietary kind of restrictions and needs, you know, we try to direct food to places where we know it's going to be the best fit. So for example, right before this, I got a call from an event location that had a celebration of life service. And afterwards it was, it was catered and they had three pans of pasta and then three pans, one full of chicken breast and two full of sausage and meatballs. So that's a ton of really good food that doesn't go well in a community refrigerator because it's too big. So that's where our job is to say, you know, we don't serve any people food directly, but we're working with all the groups who serve food. So then we can direct it to the best spot for it. Cause that's, you know, still some of that tricky part is, not all things work in all places. So that's the part we're trying to simplify for those with food to know if you have five box lunches, where's the best place for that to go? Versus if you have five enormous pans of pasta, where's the best place for that to go? And so that's really the role Eat Greater Des Moines has been playing since we started, but we're getting more efficient at it now that we have software and technology that allows us to not only put the word out of where that food is going, but engage volunteers to help with that pickup and delivery. So, you know, I think we're really trying to recognize that we want people to have what they want. What do you want? What do you need? And not just, well, here's what you get. You know, this is what we have. So really trying to work with all of our partners to know, you know, do you not want pork? You know, do you are this vegetarian vegan? Like all of those kinds of 
wants, that's what we want to know. Cause we know it's in our community. We just want to make sure it gets to them, you know, so that we can just make that process simpler. But there's, you know, there's so much out there that right now there's so much need and there aren't enough people participating. So we haven't worked out that balance yet. Right now, it's still a very much a scarcity mindset within all of these groups trying to feed people because a lot of times they're pitted against each other to, you know, get resources. Whereas food, this is the one where instead of looking at food as scarcity, because we pass that on to the people that we're serving, instead of looking at it as are we have more than enough here for everybody, but we will not get that to everybody if we look at it as only us, you know, instead of looking at how can we work together and really move this at scale so that everyone working together, everybody gets more food. But that has been a very slow shift mm. and we're not there yet because until people have what they need, they're not going to look at this as abundance. We can talk about it being abundant because we know it is, but until right. those places are willing to donate it instead of throwing it away, we're going to stay stuck. Right. No, that's that's real. Aubrey, I I know that you you've been doing this work for a long time. I, you can just you can tell that this is this is a passion of yours to really be a leader in this area and then really see change. But you can't sit here and tell me that some days just suck. Ugh. <laughs> so, so <laughs> tell me how, how are you, what, how are you getting through all this and, and fighting the good fight about something that is, has so many layers to it, right? Mm -hmm. This is a, this is a, a food system issue. What, what keeps you just getting up every day and being the hype woman you say you are, getting your yeah. flavor flave on, getting people hype up to do the work? What what is it? What what keeps what keeps you going? It's this. It's stuff getting to talk with you, getting to talk with others, and who I think getting to share my excitement and passion and to let other people know like this is all completely possible. You know, and what keeps me going is are those little like going from one community fridge to almost 40, you know, seeing the right. progress that everyone is making that we helped kickstart, but we kickstarted it. They kept it going. You know, that's what gives me hope. I'm not going <laughs> to sugarcoat it. 2022 was rough. You know, <laughs> 2020 was yeah. rough. I kept, you know, getting into the new year being like, okay, it's got to be better this year. 22 was pretty bad. And, you know, that has been, Really, there have been plenty of meetings where I've cried and just I'm frustrated, you know, because I think that's the other challenge of running a nonprofit is we do rely on donations and funding to do this work. And so it's a real delicate balance between being able to talk very openly, honestly, and clearly about what the challenges are, while recognizing that many in the funding space don't like that. They don't want you to talk about the challenges and barriers. Iowa, we have this whole Iowa nice. Well, oh, Iowa nice doesn't mean it's kind and it doesn't mean mm. it's effective and it doesn't mean we're doing the things we need to do to make sure everybody has what they need. And, you know, so I've had people be like, well, maybe, you know, are you just not being patient? Yeah. After 10 years, I've only been doing this for 10 years, but after 10 years, if I'm having the same conversations with the same people 
10 years, I am losing my patience. And I've recognized we're small. I'm small. We don't have the power and the leverage and the, you know, ability to really lift up some of these discussions. So it's been really reliant on those who do have the power to lift it up. And last year we recognized like when I push on that, we lost funders. We lost one of our biggest funders because I pushed about practicing what you preach. And instead of doing that, they said, we're not going to fund you anymore. And we're actually going to tell other people they shouldn't fund you either. You know, and so that's, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I've said, I would rather go down in my integrity. But I also it hurts. And it feels horrible when people would rather have you not say anything, than deal with it. You know, I think it's the same systemic racism and all of these things that people get more mad at those talking about it than they do about it being a problem. That's the stuff that I just can't, especially when it's coming from those in the community who are seen as leaders, who are seen as the ones who do the work. I think I've been really just disillusioned with some of those that I've put a lot of faith in being a leader in this work. And I found that for a lot of people, you know, talk is one thing. I'm going to watch people's actions and I, you can say whatever you want, but what are you doing? And that's really how, you know, there's enough people out here that are doing amazing work and want to partner. We're going to work with them. You know, we're going to keep lifting up. We're going to keep talking about what could be better and how what's possible. But we're also going to just keep moving forward with those who are ready and want to keep doing right. stuff. So it's a real balance of how to not become like, I don't want to be the person that at a meeting that's like, oh, gosh, you know, that's not fun. Because that's not right. who I am. But I also have realized over the last year that of all my values, justice is the highest. I have the privilege to talk about this work. I have the privilege to not, I know where my food is coming. I have food. I have enough access right. to that. And I'm going to use that to make things better. And if, you know, it's hard, it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, it'd be done. So I'm hoping, you know, that said, I'm really hoping 2023 isn't going to be as hard as 2022, but we'll see. Yes. I I hope that works out for you so, so much, so much. (laughs) Aubrey, thank you so much for being on with me today. I, I really, really, truly appreciated your time and your input on this super important uh, issue. For those that are listening or watching and they want to learn more about Eat Greater Des Moines, the food, food rescue, or, you know, bringing a community fridge to their community, or even just um, learning more about you, where, where can they reach you and find you? Yeah. So eatgreaterdesmoines.org is our website. We actually have on their information, um, we have our community fridge toolkit and ways that you can donate food, download our food rescue app. Um, we also are on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn as Eat Greater Des Moines or Aubrey Alvarez. And otherwise, you know, like I said, we might be based in Des Moines, Iowa. But what I love is I'm talking with a group from Illinois in a couple of weeks about a community fridge. We have partners across the country that are doing incredible work. And I love getting to talk to 
anyone from anywhere who's excited to bring something like this to their community. I think, you know, I must have gotten an A plus in kindergarten with sharing because I would much rather share what I've learned and let someone, you know, there's plenty of mistakes you're going to make. You can just make new ones. You don't have to make the ones I made. I think, you know, I'm pretty upfront and honest and know that the only way through is if we can go through with others and really build this up and recognize that everything people need is in their community. We just need to give them the resources and the power to make the change. And that's really, that's not going to happen with any one organization. But if I can help others feel like they have that ability and that they can be the person, that is, that's what I want to keep doing. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Aubrey, again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated it. Uh, And everyone, thank you for listening to the Healthy Project Podcast. I'll let you next time.